Hello and welcome to Shockingly Wicked, a true crime podcast where we bring you true crime cases from the headlines to the hometowns. I'm Brianna. I'm exhausted. It's, yeah, same. <laughs> we had to be up at like eight this morning. Well, I set my alarm for eight and then you woke me up early. So oh, I got the times wrong. That was my bad. Yeah, yeah, it was. <laughs> um, so we are here live at the True Crime Podcast Festival. We are very excited to announce that we have three people in the audience with <laughs> us today, <laughs> which is a lot more than we anticipated having. Chris so is not guys. one of them. Yeah, well, he's watching our table. Yeah, for he's us, watching so our table. That's he's he's a real one. But thank you guys so much for joining us today. This is very exciting. Today's case, what we were talking about, is the New Orleans Trunk Murders. You might have heard of them, maybe not. It's a historical case. I heard about it on, uh, my sister and I went to New Orleans, and so we took a true crime slash ghost tour <laughs> while we were down there. And this was one of the cases that we heard over there. I've been dying to do it. I have, <laughs> and it's it was, it was time. <laughs> um, so we're gonna go ahead and start with some background, and then we'll kind of move our way into the rest of the case. So we're starting off with our victims. We have Leonide Liani Lee. She went by Liani, so that's what I'm gonna end up using throughout the episode. She was born in Lauraville, Louisiana in 1901, and she was the youngest of eight children. She had three brothers and four sisters. You need a new hobby, come on. <laughs> well, I mean, back then there wasn't birth control, you know, so you, you, you did what you could. Well, no other hobbies. <laughs> well, that too. Uh, she was nine years old in 1910 when uh, she ended up living with family on her mother's side because her mother passed away uh, in 1903. Her oldest brother, Edward, passed away sometime that same year, and she was only two years old at the time. And then I have no idea what happened to her father because it said on Ancestry.com that he didn't actually pass away until 1921, but for whatever reason, she was living with her mother's family, so... I guess he was just like, eh, I don't want, I, I don't want I don't to deal with all these kids. <laughs> Here you go. Um, so on May 21st, 1917, Liani married Joseph Theodule Joe Moiti. Uh, she was 16 at the time, and he was 22. So that's not a terrible age gap, but she was still 16. So. Finally, twins. <laughs> <laughs> The, that new Demi song has been it's everywhere. I mean, it's a good song, but uh, Joe was the second youngest of five siblings born on January 17th, 1895. And the only one who is actually important is Henry. And we will come back to him in just a bit. Uh, the pair had two children. They had a daughter named Junietta June Moiti in 1919 and a son Roland born in 1921. And she was 26 years old at the time of her murder. And then we have Teresa Celestine Alfano Moiti. She was born September 14th, either 1899 or 1902. Records from back then were never really specific. So. They're not the greatest. <laughs> yeah, so I had multiple sources say 1892 or 1899 and then multiple say 1902, so I was like, we're okay. just going with it. We're gonna we're gonna say both. She was born somewhere in Louisiana. She's the second of five children, so not as many as the last family, but still more than I would ever want to have. Um, so initially, she actually married another man, but she separated from her husband at the age of 16. So I'm assuming she got married very, very young. Um, and that's when she moved in with day laborer Henry Moiti, who is the other guy's brother. Uh, they were apparently childhood sweethearts, but I only saw that like one place. So take it with a grain of salt. So. Once they secured the divorce from the first husband, the two of them got married. They had three children. They had Theta in 1923, Henry 
so like Henry Jr., I guess, uh, 1925, and Gloria in 1925 as well. So they were both, like, I thought they were twins, but apparently Gloria was three, Henry was two, so the whole Not Irish twins. twins situation. Sort of. And she was either 25 or 28 at the time that she was murdered, depending on what year she was born. And then Mr. Henry Fenrose Moiti, member of the Garbage Man Association. He was born January 25th, 19, 1898. Henry served in the Navy during World War I, but he got bored with military life, and so he ended up just deserting. <laughs> like, there was... Me too. No... I get bored a lot, and I'm just dip. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, on everything. <laughs> I, I know. <laughs> and then I end up having to face <laughs> the consequences. Um, so he deserted after a furlough, got a dishonorable discharge in 1921, and that's when he returned home to New Iberia, which is where the families lived. And that's where, I guess, in that time that he was in the military, his brother Joe married Le Leoni, who was a friend of Teresa's. And the two women convinced the men that they should move to New Orleans because this was 1920s. You know, there's a whole lot of stuff happening in the New Orleans area, especially, but this was also like mid prohibition era as well so it wasn't hard to find alcohol in new orleans so i'm sure that played a part in it so this is where things started to go downhill so in 1920s the french quarter was a diverse like working class neighborhood and the property values were decreasing so rent was more affordable in the area which meant a lot of people were moving there which um if you know anything about New Orleans, it's a lot of like artists, writers, you know, just very artsy people who lived there. But there was also a very heavy Sicilian population, which I was surprised by. Um, and unfortunately, because everybody was kind of moving into the city, that also meant that there was a rise in crime at the time hmm. as well. Uh, the families had recently moved to uh, New Orleans in the French Quarter. One of the sources said it was about a month before all of this happened. So we're going to go ahead and say it was about that. And they were living in a 1,000 square foot second floor apartment at 715 Ursulines Avenue. And I hate the way New Orleanians pronounce it. It's spelled Ursuline with an S at the end, but they pronounce it Ursuline. I know, I know you're not judging them. I am absolutely <laughs> judging them. <laughs> it's a French word. My mother is French. So I'm like, this is not, this is not how it's supposed to be said. Um, so basically... They have two families living in this thousand square foot place. There's a couple different rooms, but it was very sparsely uh, furniture. Like there was barely any furniture. Um, it was basically like a kitchen and then just mattresses everywhere. So it was it was rough going for them. Neither of the men were able to really get well-paying or stable jobs. Um, so one of them was working as a day laborer and the other was a sign painter. And so the women, uh, kind of pitched in a little bit. They would take on like sewing jobs and things to try and help make ends meet. But even still, they were not really making a whole lot of money and oftentimes couldn't afford rent. No. So this is the part where things start to get a little bit muddy because a lot of what we know about the case came directly from the husbands. And this is the 1920s. It's still very uh, heavily patriarchal, I guess, is the word we can go with. They so like women. <laughs> yeah, so they are very um, set in, there are certain roles that women should play, and this is the only role they can, they can play. But this is also like height of like flapper culture and, and, you know, all of that as well. 
So just take everything about this with a grain of salt because it's coming from the guy who murdered them. So, <laughs> I mean, it's a know, little biased. Just a smidge. <laughs> so according to Henry, both Teresa and Liane got caught up in the city life and began, quote, running around with other men, unquote, and neglecting their children. Uh, one of the men was uh, allegedly their landlord, Joseph Caruso. Uh, he comes up a little bit later as well. I mean, she sounds like she was doing them a favor. <laughs> I mean, trying to she help was trying to get the cheap rent. rent. I can't say I blame her. Uh, so they also allegedly would taunt their husbands about the money that they would make with their various sewing projects, basically saying, we can make more than yeah, you can. Yeah, me too. Girl, uh, if I'm making bank, I'm going to brag about it. <laughs> yeah. But they also allegedly were taunting them about their infidelity and the neighbors were like pitying them, the men and like laughing at them because they're like, haha, you can't even keep your wives faithful. God, okay. That sort of stuff. Again, I say allegedly because there's not really much proof to actually say that. Um, so Henry at one point stated that the women said they were going to make some money because the two of them couldn't and claims they went and started to like prostitute themselves again. Don't <laughs> take it with a grain of salt. Um, at one point, uh, Teresa allegedly flaunted like a five or ten dollar bill at him, which is worth approximately eighty-five to one hundred and seventy-five, uh, one hundred and seventy dollars today. I had to go and do the inflation calculator on that. It's fine, um, so he claims to have also begged Teresa to become the kind of wife and mother that she had been before they came to New Orleans. You know, the whole like staying in the house, not doing anything except taking care of the kids and whatnot. Yeah, a homemaker. But he, he claims that she laughed at him, said she would slap his face with money and, that she had gained by prostitution. Okay. So. That's so funny. <laughs> I don't actually think that they were actually engaged in prostitution. We'll go into that stuff a little bit more later. Her business is her business. You're right. <laughs> Uh, but there were some reports from neighbors that they would hear fights about money, accusations of adultery, and frequent drinking. And so one week before the events of the crime occurred, apparently Teresa Moiti called the police to report that her husband had threatened her with a gun. But rather than do anything about it, the cop basically said, uh, like, hey, you need to behave, essentially just a quick slap on the wrist, and then that he wouldn't be arrested, so not to worry about it, and then he left. So, Thanks. Yeah, Appreciate it. Basically. It's like, <laughs> what, what is that going to do? Like, <laughs> Appreciate it. Thanks. So at one point, Teresa announced that she and Liani were going to be moving out. Now, the reasoning for this changed depending on the source that I read. So some of them said that they were going to, quote, set up shop, which Henry took as them, like, prostituting themselves. Um, another said that he had overheard rumors that Teresa was going to be moving out and running away with their landlord, Joseph Caruso. So free rent for life, baby. <laughs> that is definitely a bonus. Um, so at on October 27, 1927, it was around 2 p.m. when their neighbor, and I saw either Nettie Compass or Netta Douglas, depending on the source you read. She was a housekeeper, and so she would occasionally, I think, come over and help clean up their apartment. And so she went over to their apartment because she was concerned about the family because she hadn't heard any noise. <laughs> and that's a lot of people living in a small area. You would think that they would hear something, especially with five children in one place yeah that's true 
And also because the night before at about 7 p.m., Henry Moiti had warned her and her husband not to get scared if they heard the children crying early in the morning. Okay. That's a tad bit concerning. A little bit. Um, a little bit. So she said she had heard the children crying around midnight, but the following morning it was everything was just really quiet, which she said was unusual. So upon entering the apartment, she saw blood on the bed in the first bedroom and then cried for help, which summoned the police. And the way the apartment was laid out, basically once you got to the top of the stairs, you would enter into the kitchen and then it was kind of just a row of rooms and all of them had like a bed in them. Mm -hmm. And so it was in that first bedroom where she saw the bed that was covered in blood. Mm -hmm. And so the police, they went in, kind of investigated further and blood was covering the walls, uh, saturated two mattresses and was pooled on the floor. There were multiple sources that claimed there were severed fingers and teeth kind of like littered around the floor. Uh, kind of like a morbid trail of breadcrumbs leading to <laughs> the bodies. Um, they also found uh, children's clothes, unfinished sewing products, and the women's belongings kind of strewn about the floor as well. And in the first bedroom, they found a traveling trunk that had a machete that was just kind of laying on top of it suspiciously. So when they opened the trunk, they found the dismembered body of, Leon, of Liani Moiti. Her head had been severed from her shoulders with her upper and lower jaws crushed. Um, her arms, legs, and her left hand had been removed as well and were tucked under her torso in the trunk. And after discovering that first trunk, they found the second one in the furthest bedroom, and that's where they discovered the body of Teresa Moiti. Her head had also been severed. Her arms were cut off at the shoulder and her legs at the knees. One hand was badly mangled and the other was chopped off at the wrist. And so they believe that the fingers belong to Teresa. And they also found her wedding ring shoved into a wound in her back. Oh, oh so my gosh. He, it was a very violent death. I could so. tell. He, he was mad. So the coroner determined that the killer, quote, knew enough not to try to cut through the bone, but to cut through the joint. The appearance of the head of the wife of the defendant indicated that it had been skillfully removed, unquote. And so apparently Henry used to work as a butcher's assistant. So he became a suspect pretty, pretty yeah. early on. Um, but the murder weapon was a sugarcane knife uh, with a two-foot blade, and I do have pictures, so if you guys would like to see the picture of the weapon, not of the we <laughs> crime scene, we got, we got you. you. <laughs> uh, the tool was a com was like common in the area, though, because there's a lot of sugar refineries and things like that in the New Orleans area. Um, and the coroner also believed that the women had been knocked unconscious with a lead billy club before they had been like stabbed and dismembered so obviously husbands are going to be the prime suspect because it's a very violent you know, passionate murder it's and always also the husband. i mean you're not when wrong it, until it's not the husband you're not wrong it's it's almost always the husband though um one thing about the butcher's assistant is that i did see one source that said that the guy who worked at that like butcher shop or whatever reported that it was joseph who worked for him so I don't know. It might have just been a convenient thing to be like, oh, Henry was a butcher's assistant? Yeah, I believe it. But either way, uh, police went to the home of Joseph and Henry's sister, Alsie. She said that at 2 a.m. on October 27th, Henry dropped off his three children and then just left with no explanation. Okay, bye. It's very suspicious. <laughs> um, 
And later that same day, Joseph turned himself in, but he insisted that he was not the one who did any of this, that his brother was the one who did, which, yeah, from all accounts, it seems that was the case. Yeah. Um, for what it's worth, Joseph and Liani, they had separated a few weeks prior to the killings because I guess allegedly you know, there was infidelity there and so he left um, and he had moved in with his sister after leaving that shared apartment so he wasn't even living there anymore but he had taken the kids to go and live with their parents back in new iberia which is where they had moved from to move to new orleans and one of the things that i found was that apparently to try and discourage liani from meeting with her new beau or whatever henry would call to have him arrested <laughs> would charge him with like loitering which would end up end up throwing so him petty. into jail for like 30 days i know i'd be so mad i'd be like really this again yeah so i i saw that and i was like copper that that tracks <laughs> so because henry dropped off the kids at two in the morning they had no idea where he was he was on the run um <laughs> you good my bad you good uh, so superintendent healy he ended up radioing the ships that were sailing out of the new orleans area to ask sailors to be on the lookout for a guy who had quote, dark bushy hair uh a very very dark brown eyes and a tattoo on one arm featuring a nude woman with a flower in her hair that's tasteful well he was it. in the navy so i imagine having a nude woman tattooed on you is some boobies makes you more part of, a, of the navy well <laughs> it, it's like there are certain things that you expect from certain types of people like i was expecting to see a whole lot more cowboy hats here in dallas and yeah so far, i've only, I've only seen, seen one, one. and I'm, it's small i'm very disappointed uh, <laughs> but it, i would expect somebody in the this navy to have the like time. a tattoo wow. of something on their arm something. involving a woman like a pinup type of tattoo yes so on October 29th, so two days later, he was found by a deputy sheriff in Lockport, Louisiana, which was 35 miles southwest of New Orleans. And we'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. We're super excited to share our newest collaboration with you all. Violet and Suds is a neurodivergent and LGBTQ-owned small business that started in October of 2012. They create all kinds of products with various themes from bath and soap products, candles, stickers and stationery, and jewelry and accessories. All products are carefully handcrafted and recipes are hypoallergenic, vegan, cruelty-free, and all-natural. 10% of their monthly profit is donated to the Tiny Paws Kitten Shelter, so you can look forward to your self-care routine and know your money is going to a good cause. You can use our exclusive code, WICKED20, to get a discount of 20% off your whole order. Again, that code is WICKED20. So head on over to violetandsuds.com and use that code at checkout. We'll see you there. And apparently he had stayed at a Camp Street boarding house and the occupants there reported Henry saying something about escaping the city by ship. Yeah. And that was why the uh, superintendent had called the ships. You know what he should do? If they get on a ship, he should do a sailboat. They wouldn't expect the sailboat. They wouldn't expect a sailboat. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I feel like that would be more conspicuous. <laughs> so they were able to locate him on a freighter called the Gem, where he had used a false name to obtain passage. 
However, the tattoo of the naked woman on his arm gave him away. I would have went and got the, the woman clothed. Like, I would have went and got that tattoo. You clothed. would think. You, you would think you would at least cover it up, you know? Just... Let me just wear a long sleeve shirt. So the crew had heard about the news by that point because it's two days later. And so he ended up getting Can caught because of that. <laughs> Turn it into a mermaid. Um, so they had heard about the murders and they were like, oh, well, yeah, you can come on. And then they called the police and were like, we'll just stall. We need coil. Yeah. So once he was in police custody, at first he tried to deny that he was the one who did it, because of course, he tried to say that it was a Norwegian sailor. He specified <laughs> a redheaded Norwegian sailor. That's I don't know so why. Uh, but he said that he had forced him to assist with the murders. Oh. Damn, them Norway people. <laughs> I know, the, the damn Norwegians. <laughs> so about a week later, by November 1st, he finally came out and said that he had been the one to do it, and he recanted that original statement. Yeah, he's trying to, like, falsify this Norwegian guy. I know, who's like, just trying to sell home. Imagine, imagine they actually find a redheaded Norwegian man, and he just this ends up in like prison sick. because of this. Like, <laughs> poor guy. So according to him, he and Teresa had fought when she said that she was going out with Liani that day um, because she, they were like, oh, you need to watch the kids because we're going to go out on the town. And of course as he mentioned earlier they he wanted her to become the wife that she was before <laughs> where yeah, like this new age crap yeah he didn't like that she was out there having a life outside of Damn taking care her. of his his crotch his crotch rockets uh so nettie the neighbor recalls henry saying something about um taking a pistol and shooting both of those bastards oh, okay so that was earlier that day <laughs> um well i guess technically on the 26th not the 27th um, so instead, he went out drinking that afternoon instead of, you know, staying home and taking care of his you know, children. Instead of going to work. As one does. Um, so even though this was mid-prohibition, of course, you were still able to find, like, speakeasies and stuff in New Orleans. And while he was out was when he bought the sugarcane machete <laughs> from a hardware store, allegedly. Uh, apparently he wanted a meat cleaver, but they didn't have those, but apparently they had a so sugarcane machete. Settled. You know, yeah, like... Like she did with him. Yeah. So... Uh, later that evening, the family went out to dinner and appeared to be in good spirits, according to the neighbor. Um, and this was when he had talked to Nettie and said, just don't worry about it if you hear children crying in the middle of the night. It's fine. <laughs> so uh, there were also rumors, like I said, that she was go that Teresa was going to run away with their landlord later that same night. And so that was kind of the final nail in the coffin. Like, he had talked about killing but I don't think he actually intended to do it until he heard that, and he's like, well, if she's leaving me... I don't know, you have to have some kind of intent to just, Well, like, yeah, discuss. obviously, he also, like, bought a machete, so, like, he was... He yeah, was, he was serious. He was, he was like, planning, so premeditated, but also, like, I don't think he, he might have courage. intended to do it that night until he heard that. Who knows? So, initially... Henry said that he had considered killing himself and the children, which you hear a lot about in abuse cases mm -hmm. where basically the husband's like... I don't know why they always have to bring the kids into it. Well, because they want to inflict maximum pain. And they figured, you don't care about me, but you care about the kids. You know, that sort of thing. But instead, he decided that he was going to kill Teresa and the sister-in-law because he believed that the sister-in-law was the one who led his wife down this into this life of debauchery. Yeah. Um, and basically, it was the whole, like, if I can't have you, no one can type of mentality, which you find in a lot of the abuse cases as well. 
So once the children and the women were in bed, Henry attacked them. So I'm unsure of which order, because some said that it was like the sister-in-law first and then the wife. Others said the opposite. But either way, he went for one first and then the second. And when whoever the second one was put up a little bit more of a fight. Um, following that was when he cut up the bodies, stuffed them into the trunks that they had been packing that night, which is why they were clothes and stuff thrown all over the place, and then took the kids to his sisters before he went on the run. Mm. And then, according to a couple of sources, Henry said on November 2nd, 1927, quote, if I ever get my hands on that Joe Caruso, I'll chop him up into little pieces, not big pieces like my wife, but little pieces. I'll make him look like something that's been run through a sausage mill. And then Joe Caruso took my wife. She was beautiful and I loved her, unquote. And I'm like, I don't know if I believe you. <laughs> I mean, he literally chopped her up into little pieces. No, big pieces. No, oh, uh, you're right. Big pieces, <laughs> my bad. You chopped her up into big pieces. So I, I don't know if I can actually believe that you loved her at all. But <laughs> so one thing that investigators found, <laughs> you're not wrong. So one thing that investigators found while they were in the apartment was apparently a rejection slip from an editor of a women's publication that uh, Leone had submitted something to. She had written basically like a fictional story in the form of a letter, but it, was, it seemed very autobiographical, so I'm going to read a couple quotes from it. Uh, quote, marriage is a life sentence. Be careful. Unquote. Oh, okay. Um, <laughs> All right. Then she had talked about, like, at one point how, like, marrying was good until it wasn't. Um, let's see. Uh, quote, marriage did not give me the freedom, riches, and romance I had pictured when a schoolgirl dreaming out an open window of the classroom with the fresh breath of spring in my face. I was happy for a time and became the mother of beautiful children, but the feeling of romance, of walking on clouds, and of seeing the world all pink and beautiful did not last long. Love left me. My second lover had foolish ideas. He was generous with his affections, but generous with his love to other women as well as to me. My money ran low, and he said he had none to give me. I sold three pairs of silk stockings that I might be able to buy food. Don't make a mistake in marrying. It doesn't always turn out the right way, unquote. And then there was like a warning at the end talking about like, marriage isn't all it's cracked up to be. So it was very uh, thinly veiled autobiographical stuff, it seemed like. And so now we're going to talk a little bit about the trial, but I'm going to give some statistics about these types of murders in the area at the time. So between 1920 and 1945, only 1.3% of local killers used axes or machetes in their murder. It was usually like guns because that's the easiest, which was makes sense. Was it the X-Men in New Orleans? Yes. Um, I think it was around this time, yeah. It was like during the height of like jazz era. So yeah, that tracks. Um, there were also no other New Orleans killers who had ever dismembered their victims in that same way in that time frame. Um, only 1.5% of local homicides had more than one victim at the time as well. And the alleged motives behind the crime, like the fights, jealousy, wife announcing they're planning to leave, that sort of thing, that was usually the catalyst of most spousal homicides in New Orleans in the 1920s. And that was also the leading cause of homicide in the early 1920s, and the rates of it had quintupled. Don't throughout. love that. Same. Um, so considering that time frame, it was post-World War One, like right before the Great Depression, like... I'm sure there's a lot of like PTSD stuff happening there, but. But in general, it's just men ain't shit. Yeah. So it's a cool motive, still murder type of situation. Yeah. So Jake Peralta, 
I'm going to use that all the time. Um, so compare that to the brutal murders that Henry committed, and the next sequence of events is going to make you very mad. <laughs> and it's also going to make very, very little sense. So he's put on trial separately for the murders of the two women. And at the first trial, Henry's lawyer tried to argue the insanity defense. He basically said that Henry was driven mad by her infidelity, uh, that he was drunk so he didn't know what he was doing. Um, but it didn't end up working because the all-male jury were actually split on how they felt about the insanity defense. Many of them believed that he was just a victim of circumstance rather than, you know, this is, <laughs> this is him just being a cold-blooded killer. Um, and so they asked, <clears throat> they asked the judge for mercy when they voted guilty without capital punishment. So he was up for potentially the death penalty, whatever it was at the time, but he didn't end up getting it. So he was convicted of murdering Teresa, and then he ended up pleading guilty to murdering Leone as well. So he was, he was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in prison, and he went to prison at the Louisiana State Penitentiary on July 6, 1928. But he felt no guilt whatsoever for what he had done. Clearly. Shocking. So, quote, I am not... wicked. Stop. <laughs> uh, quote, I am not sorry that this happened. That woman drove me crazy, unquote. Oh, okay. And he also uh, told police, like, when they were arresting him, that they didn't need to handcuff him. Uh, because he was, quote, a law-abiding citizen and not a criminal. And I'm like, you literally, you literally committed, committed a, murder. a very grisly double homicide. I, I don't know about that. Um, and so even though he was actually convicted of these murders, like, people seemed to still side with him anyway. It was a lot of like, oh, it was all their fault. They were the ones who brought this upon themselves. A lot of victim blaming, which, like, that's the times, but, like... Still, like his father said, he was a good boy and that the women, women drove him to it and he was forced to do it, that sort of thing. I'm like, no, <laughs> you, you're, nobody's forced to murder anybody <laughs> unless it's self-defense. Uh, his brother Joe, the one whose wife he murdered, he told journalists that he was sorry that his brother had killed his wife, but that he was personally glad to be rid of her. Oh, okay. <laughs> and he also blamed the women as well uh, for corrupting his brother, saying he was a jolly boy until his wife a went jolly wrong. Jolly boy? That's how I would describe everybody going a jolly broke. boy. <laughs> and then also detectives seemed to express sympathy for him as well, basically like, oh, well, I get it. I, I would have done the same, you know, that sort of thing. Um, the parish coroner, who was apparently a force, uh, fierce proponent of law and order, so basically like you did the crime, you do the time, he also blamed the women <laughs> for their own beheadings. And then there was a newspaper there called the New Orleans States, and at the time of the publication, they estimated about half of the population actually favored Henry and like sided with him. and. Wow. Yeah. And that's why he ended up only getting like the life sentences instead of capital punishment. Mm. So he was at the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which is called Angola Prison, um, which is supposed to be a hard labor prison. And a lot of people end up like dying early because of that. But he was actually given a lot of freedom while he was there. Okay. Again, shocking. So he would like smoke a lot. He'd paint in his cell. And there was even a painting that was hanging in the governor's office for like a while uh, that he had done. Um, he also like received visitors and would detail the crime to them, you know, just like I hate that. <laughs> shooting shit. Um, 
He was also made a trustee in the prison in 1934, which meant that he was given special assignments and he was like less heavily guarded. So like he would run errands for the prison personnel, like to the post office and stuff. And he was just allowed to like walk around, you know, just do whatever. Um, he allegedly applied for parole at some point, but he was denied. I don't know. I only saw that in like one place. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, but during a routine trip to the post office in the summer of 1944, he ended up hailing a taxi to take him to Hammond, Louisiana, where he caught a train to Chicago. Oh. So, <laughs> yeah, he was literally just walked out. <laughs> and the warden of the prison, he was just like, ah, don't worry about it. He'll return on his own. <laughs> um, because they, at the time, he was going to be he was being considered to have his sentence like pardoned sort of by the governor uh, because of temporary insanity because he was drunk at the time that he committed the murders and he had already served 16 years of his sentence at that point so oh. the warden wasn't too worried about it but he did not return on his own <laughs> shocking I wouldn't either and it was almost two years later before he was recaptured in St. Louis Missouri and sent back to Louisiana in the in April of 1946 and in spite of all of that, Louis, the Louisiana Pardon Board recommended his release in 1947. So uh, about 10 of the 12 jurors in the original trial apparently submitted petitions endorsing clemency. And then more than 1,000 New Orleans residents also sent something similar in, too. And so on March 26, 1948, Governor Jimmy Davis signed off on Henry's pardon. And then in 1959, Jimmy Davis was campaigning to try to become governor again. And he was asked at the time why he had paroled a man who committed double homicide. And he said, that's not on me. The parole board insisted, saying they should never have convicted him by reason of insanity. That's not on me. And I'm like, he very easily could have just not signed it. But you know, yeah, it is what it is, I guess. So after his release, he moved to California and nearly 30 years went by without incident until January 1956, when he shot his common-law wife, who was 35-year-old Alberta Orange. Uh, the couple were at an L.A. hotel when they allegedly argued after Alberta asked him for money for clothes. It's a very <laughs> mild ask, I would think. But he shot her in the chest and punctured her lung, and she called the desk clerk and reported that she had been shot, and thankfully she survived, which is how we even know that it happened. But uh, he was tried for attempted murder and assault with a deadly weapon, which is how he ended up in Folsom Prison for another five years, allegedly. And this is a tie into some paranormal spooky stuff a little bit. Um, there is a Louisiana folktale entitled uh, The Sausage Ghost. So. It has a lot of similarities to this case. It's in a book by Lyle Saxon called Gumbo Yaya. So if you've ever been to New Orleans, you'll probably hear that name. Um, but it's got a lot of Louisiana folktales and stuff in it. And so this story, um, it takes place mid 19th century with German immigrants, Mr. and Mrs. Hans Muller, who opened a sausage factory at 725 Ursuline Street. He had eyes for a young girl in the area and he was unhappy with his wife, so he decided he was just gonna get rid of her. 
So he ended up using the huge meat grinder in his shop to dispose of her body and made sausages out of the meat he served at the butcher shop for weeks until a customer bit into a piece of Mrs. Mueller's wedding ring. And then her ghost apparently also haunted the shop until Hans ended up going insane. So similarities there, obviously, the Moities lived at 715 Ursuline, uh, Ursuline, whatever, and that one was at 725. Then Henry allegedly also worked as a butcher's assistant. And then also there's that comment he made about how if he ever found Joe Caruso, he would like chop him up into little bits and all that. So they believe that this folklore was heavily influenced by that. But um, if you hear this story, you might hear some of the like sausage ghost stuff thrown in there. So that's pretty much where that comes from is they think sometimes people will overlap that information. So a little bit of the aftermath. Uh, Leone is buried in a pauper's grave in New Orleans St. Louis number three cemetery. Teresa was buried in St. Peter's Cemetery in New Iberia, so back where they lived beforehand. Henry only ended up serving one year of his sentence at Folsom Prison because he died of a stroke in 1957 that's at what the he age gets. of 59. Well, that's <laughs> so, what he gets, yes. so. <laughs> so he, he ended up getting the just desserts and he's buried in the prison cemetery over there. And Joe remarried to a woman named, I think it's Cloitiel Landry. Don't know how to pronounce that. I apologize if I butchered it. But he did that within two months because the women were murdered at the end of October in 1927 and he got ma remarried in 1927. So it was sometime within those two months that he just got remarried. <laughs> I'm like, you moved on very quickly considering you had only been separated from your wife for like two, three weeks before she was murdered, but. Whatevs. Who am I to say? Um, he ended up going on to have one more child with his new wife and then also adopted his brother's three children. So. Wow. Thoughts. Um, like I said earlier, I don't actually believe that the women were cheating or sex workers. I mean, maybe, but there's probably a reason why they were going around with other men, like their husbands did not treat them very well. Um, like I said, there, this is also like the height of flapper culture. So with the men having this very like set idea of like a woman's role in, in their lives and whatnot, that. I imagine that they were not very pleased with the fact that these women wanted to go out and have lives and be somewhat independent outside of you are my wife, you are my mother's or my children's mother, that is all you are, that's all you can be. So that's kind of my thoughts on that. And also like statistically speaking, nobody just automatically jumps to such a brutal murder. There's usually like a buildup of like abusive behavior and then they get to that point. So I just think it was a convenient excuse that was used for the justifying of the killing and, uh, you know. Men ain't shit. Yeah, that's, that's the moral of the story. So we have another member of the Garbage Man Association. And we'll go ahead and say that Joe is also a member, even though he didn't participate because he, like, was just like, oh, yeah, the, the women, they drove us crazy. It's fine. So, yeah, that's, <laughs> that is the, the New Orleans trunk murders. And I would highly recommend looking up some more information if you are interested in seeing. Like I said, I do have pictures of like the victims, not like bloody, but like before they were murdered and whatnot, if you would like to see them. Um, do you have any thoughts you'd like to share? 
other than men ain't shit. No. Okay. <laughs> That's my only thought. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for being here. And for those of you who tuned in online, we really appreciate it. You can check out our stuff on our website at shockinglywicked.com. And we will see you next week. Bye. Peace out. Peace out. <laughs>